You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47, verses 1 through 9. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. This is the word of the Lord. And for our New Testament reading, turn to John chapter 7. John 7, verses 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you'd pour out your water, the water of life on us. May it be a wellspring up in our hearts to water this town, this state, this nation, this world. Father, would you bless our reading of your word now this morning, that we might hear and believe and receive this water of life. And in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It is a real pleasure to be with you. Um, We've gotten to know your congregation uh, from a distance over the last couple of years, meeting the Browns and a few other of the families from your congregation uh, here and other CREC gatherings. But it definitely is a real delight to be able to be with you to to worship this morning. We're encouraged by the work that you're doing and and pray for uh, God's blessing on it. Um, Back at home in Moscow, i uh, preach frequently at our downtown service, and uh, we've been working through the Gospel of John. So this is a distillation of uh, some of the points that have come out over that that sermon series. Um, and and so we we pick up here in verse thirty seven of John chapter seven. It says here, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up. And he cries out, saying, "If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink." Um, it says that he does this on the le- the last day of the feast. Now the feast that is being mentioned here, that's referred to here, is the Feast of Booths, or in Hebrew, it's um, Sukkot, 
or you might have heard it as tabernacles. It's the, the feast that celebrates God's deliverance uh, of the Israelites and the time they spent in the wilderness living basically in, in tents, um, and also celebrates God's provision for Israel and the harvest uh, that he would send them. And so to celebrate it, the Israelites live, you've you got a week where you get to basically all go to Jerusalem and live in tents and camp out. Um, and, and this is an, an annual festival. And um, it's one of the great pilgrim feasts. You've got three pilgrim feasts, and the pilgrim feasts are the ones where every uh, three times a year, everybody's supposed to travel to Jerusalem and celebrate a feast where they all uh, get together. And you're traveling from all over the known world at that time to be in Jerusalem for the feast. But the, of the three festivals, the, the three pilgrim feasts, the Feast of Booths is um, by far the most popular. This is, this is the feast of all feasts. It's funny because I always thought that it would have been um, Passover or something like that because I think of the significance of Passover for us as Christians prefiguring Easter. But for, um, for the Jewish uh, people at this time, the Feast of Booths, um, Sukkot, this was this was the one that you cannot miss. You have to make sure that you are in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booze. It's the most popular of the pilgrim feasts. And the reason for this popularity, the reason why this feast was the most uh, popular was because of a tradition that had developed around this feast between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. That period is called the intertestamental period. And there's a lot of Jewish traditions that kind of develop leading up to the time of Jesus. And there was a tradition that was associated with the Feast of Booths during this time that made it particularly popular. If you look at the book of um, Zechariah, so we're right at the end of the Old Testament. Um, Zechariah uh, chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. Okay, Uh, So at the end of the book of Zechariah, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles, booths or Sukkot. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. And it goes on a little bit to talk about how you, ha- you, you need to make sure that you make it to Jerusalem for Sukkot, for booths. And if you don't make it to Jerusalem, he, Zechariah is invoking a curse on you that, that you will not get rain that year. And so traveling to Jerusalem for booths became associated with basically the prayer to God that he would send the rain for the coming season. So they, they start to associate keeping booths with the blessing of rain to provide the crops for the upcoming growing season. So because of this passage from Zechariah, this um, feast becomes associated with prayers for rain for the upcoming season, and this focus evolved into an additional element to the, the, cer- the ceremony around the Feast of Booths. So what would happen is, in the morning of the feast, uh, the priests would go down to the Pool of Siloam, which is the pool where... Um, Jesus sends the man who was born blind to go wash his eyes to be healed. Uh, That's in John 9. That's the Pool of Siloam. So in this feast, the priest would go down to the Pool of Siloam. He'd fill a silver pitcher 
with water and bring it back up into the temple. And he would go through this gate that was called the fountain gate or the water gate. And it was called that because of this ceremony, bringing the pitcher of water through this particular gate. And the priests, the other priests would line up with shofars, you know, those um, crazy horns. They would all line up with those horns and blow the shofar as the pitcher of water came up into the temple. Now, normally every morning, the priest would offer sheep, grain, oil on the altar, uh, and then pour wine on the corner of the altar. But during Sukkot, the priest would pour the water that had been brought up from the pool of Siloam, and he would pour it on the corner of the altar. And this was supposed to be a prayer asking God to send rain for the upcoming season. But then after the sacrifice and this whole ceremony, a party would start in the temple courtyard. Um, and a huge crowd would gather in the, in the temple court, courtyard and they would stay uh, in, into the evening. And during this time, enormous candelabras would be set up in the courtyard. Candelabras that went over 100 feet in the air. If you were a young boy uh, in the congregation at this time, uh, you would have been grabbed and given a torch and told your job is to climb the candelabra over 100 feet into the air, lighting it all the way up. And you had these all around the courtyard so that when when night fell, you had this blazing light that just um, engulfed the whole courtyard and this huge party that was starting uh, in the midst of it with everybody packed in. There were uh, multiple Levitical bands, so Levites who were trained in music that were playing music and basically had bands all around playing crazy music the uh, candelabras lighting the whole thing up. And then uh, the dancing would start. And then the dancing, the, the pinnacle of the dancing, uh, and I'm not making this up, uh, the pinnacle of the dancing was acrobatic tricks. So uh, all kinds of gymnastic stunts being pulled uh, with crowds gathering to cheer and dance all around it and sing. Um, you know uh, Gamaliel, who Paul says at, that he was raised at Gamaliel's feet, uh, feet. Gamaliel was this really famous rabbi, and he's throughout um, rabbinic literature, you hear about the teachings of Gamaliel. He had a son, uh, Shimon ben Gamaliel, who also becomes a famous rabbi after him, and, and he shows up uh, in uh, rabbinic works as well. So you get his teaching also. But he was uh, Gamaliel's son, so I'm guessing probably roughly the same age as Paul, and likely a close friend of Paul. They would have grown up together uh, learning from Gamaliel. But Shimon ben Gamaliel, he distinguishes himself as a rabbi later, but one of the things he's most well known for was um, not just being a great rabbi, but one night at the Feast of Booths, being able to juggle um, eight lit torches with one hand without letting them touch one another. And then he finished it off with a two-fingered handstand um, in the midst of this courtyard. So it's, it's a crazy party. It, it, is, it is this tumultuous, lively thing, and it goes every night um, from dusk to dawn. They party through the night, singing, dancing, and doing all this. It goes all the way until sunrise uh, on the last day. 
the Mishnah, one of the earliest um, uh, rabbinic sort of preservations of their understanding of the law, the Mishnah said that one who had never witnessed the rejoicing at the place of the water drawing ceremony, that, that's what this was. This was the water drawing ceremony and the rejoicing that went on around it. The Mishnah says that one who had not witnessed the rejoicing at the place of the water drawing ceremony had never seen true joy in this life. Like this, this was the pinnacle of the greatest moment that you could have. Uh, the, the water drawing ceremony and the Feast of Booze, it was like if you could take Christmas, 4th of July, and your birthday, put them all together and make it last for a whole week. That's what this party was. So then um, it's really striking that if you think about that for a moment, okay, you've got this crazy party. It's the most incredible celebration that you could possibly have. Um, and it's all about praying to ask God to send uh, water, to send his rain. And then at the end of that, at the very end of that, we have Jesus. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It, it, that's what a crazy moment to stand up and say, you don't know where the real water is. There's something that you're missing. There's something that you're missing. Um, they're just, it, I think it's really reminiscent of Jesus' conversation with the um, Samaritan woman at the well in chapter four, right? Um, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. They, like the Samaritan woman, are asking God for water. And Jesus comes to say, there's another water that you haven't tasted yet. And that water is me. That's the water that you actually want. The water that Jesus has is the living water. It's the water of life. He says that both to the Samaritan woman and to them. The water I'm going to give you is the water of life. It's true living water. There's a water that you, that you are thirsty for, but you don't know about this water that you really need, this water of life. So if you think about it, then there's, there's, there's physical life and death, uh, and then there's life and death that goes beyond this. Um, we already sort of know this. This is, we, we um, know this intuitively. Um, you don't have to be a Christian actually to kind of feel the significance of this. Uh, we have a way of describing times that are most enjoyable or most poignant as the times when we truly feel alive, right? When you were on vacation, you will say, this is truly living or this is the life, right? Uh, if you get a, a condo by the beach, it's guaranteed somewhere on the wall is a picture of a beach and some slogan that says something like, this is the life, or this is truly living. Um, we, we have this sense that there's, there's biological life that we all have, but then there are moments that feel super poignant, super uh, beautiful, we're overwhelmed with beauty, with peace, with love, and you feel like there, there's this taste of this life, that that might be the real thing, and, that, and you kind of hunger and crave this real, this true life. Remember Mel Gibson as William Wallace and Braveheart in his quote, every man dies, but not every man really lives, became, I remember, the senior quote for every kid for, I don't know, about a decade after that. But he, he, he does capture there this something that we know, this, this sense of like, there's an emptiness, a hollowness to life, but then there are some things where it's like you feel like you're truly alive when that is happening. And 
And, and this, this sensation that I'm describing that everybody feels, you don't have to be a Christian to feel that, but that, that sensation, there is actually a biblical truth to it. Um, though we don't usually quite understand it right until we come to a more Christian understanding. When you come to Christ, you start to see the truth of it. So start with death, for instance. There's physical death, but then there's spiritual death. There's physical death, then there's spiritual death. Spiritual death is being cut off from God. When you're, when you're cut off from God, when you can't taste him, you can't see him, you can't feel him. When you're cut off from God, that is spiritual death. Uh, Ephesians 2.1, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. When you're in your trespasses and sins, cut off from God, that is death, that you, you are dead. And those who are living in sin are alienated from the life of God, it says in Ephesians 4.18. Uh, and you, this is Colossians 2.13, you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So to be living in your sin uh, to be cu- is, is to be cut off from God, and that is spiritual death, right? To be living in your sin, cut off from God, is spiritual death. Um, the, the men who don't truly live are those that are living cut off from the life of God. And this spiritual death culminates in the ultimate death, the second death, right? The um, Revelation 21.8 says this, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Okay, so spiritual death culminates then in the eternal judgment of hell. That's the second death. And that's real, true death. But then you have the opposite. That's what death looks like, but you have the opposite. Uh, you have spiritual life, which is the life that Jesus offers. John 1, 4. He, he, we're told that Jesus came to offer life. It's how John introduces him. I think the first like 15 verses of John, basically the rest of the book of John is just trying to unpack how Jesus is introduced in those first few verses. And this is how he's described in John 1, verse 4. It says that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So Jesus comes with life itself. He is life. Okay, To be cut off from God is death, but Jesus is life itself. This life that we all hunger, we crave, we, we get glimmers of it here or there. That life is what is inside of him. It's all in, inside of him. Or Jesus explains this to the thief on the cross next, um, or, or sorry, not to the thief on the cross. He just references the thief. John 10, 10. Um, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have, to co- I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So Jesus comes with the state of, stated purpose of taking this overflowing life that is in him that we crave, this, this life that's in, in him, he came with the goal of bringing this life and giving it to us. When you, when you have life from Jesus, you have life overflowing from your own heart, uh, as it was described earlier in John 7. Um, a city, think of it this way, a city that has a well springing up inside of it is a city that is virtually impossible to beat with a siege. Like in, in the ancient world, that was the strategic thing, was to have a city that has a well inside of it and a wall like this. So you've got the wall outside and a well inside because an army surrounds you and your wall holds them out and you just sit and wait because you have water inside of you. That's going back to the Pool of Siloam. That's the interesting thing about it. Hezekiah has the Pool of Siloam set up 
so that, so that, is, or so that Jerusalem will have a well inside of its wall so they can, they can withstand a long siege because they have a well inside of it. Okay, and that's what, that's what life, the life of Christ is for you. When you have that life in you, it's life flowing up inside of you and overflowing, coming out of your own heart. And just as spiritual death culminates in the second death, spiritual life culminates in eternal life. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You would have eternal life. You, had, you would have life, um, basically life multiplied by infinity. Um, I can, if you can remember back, if you ever did calculus, I can remember uh, my college calculus class. I didn't learn a whole lot from it, but I do remember one thing. The one thing I can take away from it is that when you take any number, no matter how small or how finite that number is, as soon as you multiply it by infinity, um, incredible things happen right? And it doesn't matter how small or insignificant, insignificant that number is. If you multiply it by infinity, it becomes infinite itself, right? You have life, all right? But you have life multiplied by infinity. You have eternal, everlasting life inside of you. And that's why it can well up inside of you and overflow and fill the world around you. Eternal life is life multiplied by infinity, now, this is, if, if you think about it, okay, so Jesus is, is standing here and he's speaking to these people who are asking for water and he tells them, there's water that you don't know about. There's the water of life and I am that water that you're actually seeking. Well, that, that argument that he makes there is one that he does again and again throughout the gospel of John. Think of um, in John 6, you've got a crowd that is hungry. So Jesus comes, he multiplies the, the, the fishes and the loaves and he feeds them. But then when he's done, he says, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. You were hungry, but the bread that you ate is not the bread you need. I'm the bread you really need because I'm the bread of life. Um, he does this again and again. Eight, uh, John eight twelve. I am the light. The world around you is dark. You can't see. You can't figure out what you're supposed to be doing. It doesn't make sense. I am the light, the light that you're looking for. Uh, or you feel trapped in. You feel like there's no escape. You feel um, like you're, you're jammed in a tight space and there's no way out for you. And he says, I am the door, John 10, 7. I am the door that you are looking for. You feel lost. You feel alone. He says, I am the shepherd in John 10, 11. 11. I am the shepherd. I'm the good shepherd that's come to deliver you. Uh, he is the way. He is the truth, the light. He's the true vine, the resurrection. He is the life. Each of these, he says, I am, I am, I am the resurrection. I am the life. And he says it throughout the gospel of John again and again. I am this, I am that, I am this thing that you need. I am that. And I think the, the thing that we you start to realize as you're working your way through John is that he keeps saying, I am the bread, I am the water, I am the light, I am the path. You can kind of just basically delete the direct object and you start to see what he is revealing to you. He is the I am. He is I am. He is the one who just is. He is the I am. He is, the, he is all that mankind is searching for, hungering for, thirsting for, longing for. All of it finds its real and true fulfillment, its lasting and its satisfying fulfillment in him, the one who is, who is the I am. 
And I think all, all Christian faithfulness is rooted in receiving this truth by faith, that he is this and he is this for you. And you receive that by faith. You have that water inside of you by faith. So, so by doing this, what I'm, I'm doing is I'm describing what you might call the complete and total sufficiency of Christ. He, he is the complete and sufficient answer for all that you need. Not just the fact that his death is sufficient to atone for all your sins, but the fact that the person Jesus Christ is so infinite in his life that his life in you is the overflowing answer for everything that you're looking for, for everything that you're longing for, everything that you crave. His life in you is the actual true answer to that thing that you, that you hunger for. Um, humor me for just a moment with a, a brief uh, theological sidetrack here, uh, uh, a theology nerd rabbit trail for, for just a moment. You, you may have heard what, um, what theologians refer to as the doctrine of divine simplicity, um, the doctrine of divine simplicity. In, in very simple summary, probably overly simplistic, um, the, the doctrine of divine simplicity says that you can't divide up the nature of God. You can't chop up the nature of God and have him be part this over here and part this over there. Um, so whatever or wherever God is, all of God is that. All of God is there. You can't, you can't divide him up. Um, now, you've heard, there's a little bit of an evangelical cliche I think it's maybe it's from like God's not dead or something like that. That, that, that slogan, um, God is good all the time. That's actually just an application of the divine simplicity of God. All the time. No matter, because God is good, because God is good, you can't chop him up. You can't have him be good on Mondays, but not so good on Tuesdays. In all that he does, everywhere that he is, his goodness is there. And it's a great comfort because suddenly you start to realize that things that feel like a hard providence from God, you know that his goodness is there because all of God is always in all that he does. You can't, you can't divide him up. That's the doctrine of divine uh, simplicity. Um, so there's quite a lot to say about this doctrine, but I just want to point out one little implication. Uh, so again, wherever God is, all of God is there. Wherever God is, all of God is there. Or think of it like this, God's omnipresence. We describe God as omnipresent. He is everywhere. Um, but a lot of times when people like kind of imagine what that means, we'll think of God as like a, a large, an incredibly large um, ball of dough that can be rolled out and, until it covers everything. But when you do that, then you're, you're getting, God is getting thinner and thinner. You know, he, he's omnipresent um, everywhere by being really thin everywhere. Not all of him. It's just a small little portion of him. And you're kind of rolling him out really thin. Well, that's not God's omnipresence. Again, divine, doctrine of divine simplicity. Wherever God is, all of God is there. All of him. Not just a little bit. I can remember um, the application for this came home to me when, I, as a little kid, I can remember being taught, I was raised in a Christian uh, family, um, and being taught that you, that Jesus, I think I, I had the conception that Jesus is kind of like your best friend. And prayer means that you can speak to him wherever. Okay. So you can talk to your best friend where, wherever you go. And that's how I thought of it. And I took it very seriously. He's my best friend. I tell him everything. I pray like crazy all the time until one day I suddenly realized like the kid next to me seems to think that he has the same relationship 
that, that he, he can have this with Jesus too. And then suddenly it was like, I thought you were my best friend. All right. It, it doesn't see, it, it felt like I was being betrayed because other people seemed to think that they had this same privilege relationship that I was convinced that I had. But again, the doctrine of divine simplicity, wherever God is, all of God is there. God, God's um, unique care, love, and communication with me um, is the entirety of him. And the fact that somebody over there has the same relationship with him does not divide his attention in half. It does not take away from me at all. Wherever God is, all of God is there. Um, and so in my relationship with him, I have all of God, but that doesn't take away from anybody else. So apply this then for a moment to what we've been saying about Jesus and the life that he gives. Okay, Jesus and the life that he gives. Jesus Christ has in himself eternal, infinite, overflowing, all-sufficient life. Okay, he has that kind of life in himself. And that life that he is, is given to you in the gospel. That's handed to you in the gospel. And then apply that doctrine of divine simplicity. Where that life is, all of that life is. All of that life is there. All of that life is in you. It's not, it's not rolled thin like dough across the universe. It's not uh, partitioned out, each Christian getting their own equal share. All of that life is given to you in Christ. What Christ is, he is exhaustively for you, for you personally applied to you. And the fact that there will be tens of billions of saints who share in this life, in the, in the day of the resurrection, does not mean that you're getting one ten billionth of the life. You're getting the entirety of it. You get all of it. And that's why I say that, um, that we need to understand the incredible sufficiency of the life that we have in Christ. It means that Jesus, that the life of Jesus is not just sufficient um, to lift up someone who's at the very bottom. Okay, think of Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. We know she's had a very rough life. She's been rejected by lots of people. She's had all kinds of marriage issues. You can see why she's this sort of been cast out. And for Jesus to come to her, it's for Jesus to stoop down to her. He's offering her something spectacular. But Jesus, the life that Jesus has is not just appealing to those that are at the very bottom. Jesus can stand up at, to Jerusalem at the last day of the Feast of Booths when they are at their, the, the pinnacle of joy, at the very best that life has to offer, he can stand up at that moment and say, you still don't have what you really need. I have more. I, I, have, I have more than, than your lowest moments, and I have more than you at your highest moments. I have this life, and this life is for you. Okay, so that's why I need to say, that's why I say we need to understand the incredible sufficiency of the life that we have in Christ. Um, and and as, as good Reformed Protestants, we understand the sufficiency of Christ with regard to our salvation. You know, we think in terms of like forgiveness of sins, that, that Christ's work is perfect and sufficient to forgive all of our sins. But I want to press on how this sufficiency works its way out into the rest of our lives. Not just the forgiveness of your sins, but it's the rest of your life. Paul tells us as you've... <laughs> That's great. Paul says in Colossians 2, 6, he says this, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. He went that way. (laughs) 
Colossians 2.6, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Okay, so, so, so think about it like this. Um, we understand this when it's applied to our forgive, the forgiveness of our sins. When we understand atonement and the fact that Jesus, his, his um, life, his death was perfect and sufficient to cover all of my sins. And, and we get that. Um, you were a dead corpse when Jesus came to save you in your spiritual death. Uh, just like Lazarus in John 11, you contributed nothing to your salvation but the ripe smell of death. Right? That, that's what you had to, to bring to that moment that Jesus died for you, forgave all of your sins, atoned for all of it, and dealt with all of it. You brought nothing. He, he brought all the life, all the sufficiency. But Paul says, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. What I mean by that is, um, in, in applying this here, is that it's not just the sufficiency of Christ for our atonement. It's the rest of your life that Christ's life is sufficient for. It's not just your forgiveness of sins. It's the rest of your life that his life is sufficient for. As you've received him by grace through faith, not of works, you received this life. So walk in him. The rest of your Christian life is characterized by you receiving this life. That's the, re- the rest of your life is shaped by it. So you were saved wholly by the work of God and not by what you did. But having been saved, how do you then walk? And this is tough because we know that having been saved, we're now called to obedience, right? Uh, the Great Commission says, baptize them and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. So you get baptized, you're a new Christian, now you're taught to obey. So, so you become a Christian and then you're supposed to live a life of obedience. The temptation there is to think that sal- salvation is of a grace, right? You were saved, you were forgiven, but then after you're saved, you're supposed to obey. So then we have a tendency to sort of shift to works, to shift to effort, right? I received forgiveness by faith. Now I go to obey and this is now I have to live out this life of works. But it's really important to understand that obedience for a regenerate Christian is fundamentally different than obedience outside of Christ. Okay, It might look the same to those that are on the outside. Um, one child honoring his parents in Christ and another child honoring his parents outside of Christ, it probably looks very similar. But on the inside, it's quite a bit different. Obedience for the regenerate Christian comes from a fundamentally different place. Um, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You obey from a position of grace and spirit-filled power. Okay, Obedience flows from this grace and spirit-filled power. All Christian obedience flows from resting in the perfect sufficiency of Christ. Okay, all Every time you go to do a good work, to go to obey, to go to do the hard thing, it is not you gritting your teeth to try to earn some um, favor from God. It is fundamentally you resting in this sufficiency of life that I'm describing. If Christ is this life, that gives you something different inside of you and that something different inside of you changes the way you approach the rest of life. All Christian obedience flows from resting in the perfect sufficiency of Christ. It might look different or the same on the outside, but it's fundamentally different on the inside. Let me give you, give you a couple examples. Think of a strong impulse that you know is sinful but still easily control, controls you. Okay? Think of a strong impulse that, that you know is wrong 
but when it comes on you, you feel like there's a bit and bridle on you and you're going to be driven hard in one direction. It feels almost like you're under its control. You're almost a slave to it. It feels like it really controls you. It could be a temptation to sexual immorality, a lust that has a hold of you that when it gets you, it's hard for you to shake it. Or it could be a spirit of anger. There are certain situations, maybe people in your life that you hear that voice and you can just feel your face getting red. You you just, it, uh, it annoys you and you can feel the anger welling up inside of you. Maybe there's something that happened to you in life. Whenever you re- you rehearse that memory uh, in your mind, the bitterness, the resentment gets a hold of you and it just controls you for the rest of the day. Think of something like that, something that gets a hold of you and it's very difficult for you to shake. Could be a depression, despair, uh, anything along the, those lines. Now ask yourself this, okay, ask yourself this. What are you desiring? What is it you are longing for that Christ is not so much more than that? What are, you, what, are you, what are you hoping for that Christ himself is not infinitely that thing for you? Um, think of Jesus throughout the book of John saying again and again, I am, I am the bread, I am the water, I am the life. Whatever you think you are looking for, I fundamentally am the fulfillment or the satiation of that desire. I am the ultimate fulfillment of that thing that you are uh, hungry for. I am the wealth. I am the health. I am the love. What, what do you need that Jesus is not? And what he is, he is eternally and infinitely specifically for you, right? He is that for you. So you can fight lust, you can fight depression, you can fight jealousy, you can fight all those things with a whole lot of effort and work, or you can fight them simply by resting in who Jesus is, resting in that. And suddenly it's strange because obedience, it's, it's still obedience, but it's obedience through faith. It's obedience through rest. It's obedience through simply applying Christ to that element in your heart. It is, it is resting. All Christian obedience is rooted simply in resting in Christ. Let me come at this from uh, one other angle. Um, I think one of the things that can particularly be paralyzing is not so much the, the temptation that lies before us, but the terrible record of sin that lies behind us. Okay, uh, the, the grief and the sorrow over the mess that you've made uh, in your life or the shame of things from the past can trap you in this little prison house of despair. Right? You, you can get trapped by things that are just in the past that your memory holds on to that you can't let go of, and the memory makes you feel like you're on this set of railroad tracks that you can't get off of. Like, like, it's weird. You can, be, um, you can almost feel like to not commit that sin would be to be a hypocrite. Right? Because I feel like I fundamentally am this person who's guilty of this, and I'm only, um, I'm betraying myself. I'm being a hypocrite if I try to not do it because this is just who I am. And you can get trapped in that, or you can get trapped by, by, like I said, by the guilt, the despair, uh, the grief of, of sins from the past. Think, think of it like this a 10 year old boy can find great pleasure in picking at his scabs right? You can, you could sit there and say, that's gross. That's disgusting. Don't do that to yourself. And yet they find pleasure in sitting there and working away at it. And you wonder why would you do that? But, but think about ourselves. How often do we have spiritual scabs that we just sit and pick at? 
and, and you're just making yourself more and more miserable. It's grotesque what you do. But weirdly, you can find this kind of perverse sort of pleasure in just sitting there, picking over your spiritual scabs. Uh, your past failures haunt you, and the condemnation that you feel from those sins, it feels like a trap that you cannot get out of. But again, simply understanding who Christ is and what he has done, and then realizing that what he did, he definitively accomplished for you. And then this is suddenly the most freeing thing at all. You're not in that prison. Christ's life is in me. That life is mine. That life is overflowing. And none of those things define me. This life is too infinite for that to define me. It pushes everything out. I am his. He is mine. And I'm not going to be defined by that. And it is simply resting in Christ and the life that he has from you that, again, it frees us from all of our sin and it makes obedience possible. Think of um, Jesus' words to Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. Just Lazarus, come forth. Stand up, walk out of it. He doesn't say, Lazarus, you know, roll around in there for a while, feel sheepish and guilty for what you did. Uh, Lazarus, come out, but keep the grave clothes on you for the next year or so that everybody knows what a bad boy uh, that you have been. He simply says, Lazarus, come forth. And then I love the next line, loose him. Loose him and let him go. Just, just take the grave clothes off right? It's done. Because, because my life is in him. Those grave clothes don't define him. My life defines him. And you simply stand up and walk. There's not a long penance. There's not a long trying to make it up to Jesus. There's not a long um, trying to kind of be half in, half out so that nobody is surprised by the whiplash of this new life. It's just simply stand up, walk out, drop the grave, clo- the grave clothes, and live because of Jesus and the life that is in him. Because Jesus is life. His life in Lazarus drives out the death. His infinite life in Lazarus drives out all of the death. Um, You are free, and all of your obedience from this day on flows not from the work and effort and slaving to be a better person, but simply from resting in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you and who he is infinitely and sufficiently and particularly for you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are the author of life. You're the giver of all good things. You're the source of every blessing and you pour out your blessings with such generosity. Father, we're surrounded by the beauty and the joy of your goodness on all sides. And we receive all these things as a small down payment of the joy to come. But Father, we can only look to that joy to come with the eye of faith. And we can only open that eye of faith if you give it. So we ask that you would pour out your spirit on us. Open our eyes that we might look clearly to the life that is to come. And that we might know that we have that inheritance. Father, create that life in us that it might become an overflowing well in our hearts. That would fill this town with gospel hope. We praise things in Jesus' name. And amen.